Good afternoon. Thanks to Council for being flexible with our scheduling. Our next case is uh, State versus Julius, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is John Carella. I'm an assistant appellate defender and a member of the bar from Durham County. I represent the appellant, Miss Joanna Julius. Seated to my right is appellate defender, Glenn Girding. I plan to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. According to the Court of Appeals majority, the government can search your car without a warrant or probable cause if they believe they will eventually arrest a person who is not present on the mere chance of finding that person's identification. This holding threatens to make the unconstitutional search that led to Ms. Julius's convictions into an erosion of the Fourth Amendment that should concern this court and every citizen of North Carolina. Ms. Julius asked this court to enforce the Constitution and to reverse the Court of Appeals. It'll be necessary to talk about this case in two different ways because the trial court and the Court of Appeals upheld the search using different theories to exempt the search from constitutional protections um, on search and seizure. Both were in error and both courts advanced theories that pose a real risk to the right of the people to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures. The correct resolution of this case is straightforward and this court need only apply either one of the Fourth Amendment's basic requirements, a warrant and probable cause, to hold that the search violated Joanna Julius's constitutional rights and the motion to suppress should have been granted. Since this case comes to this court on the split decision from the Court of Appeals, I plan to address first the Court of Appeals majority's error in casting this as a search incident to the hypothetical arrest of Kyle Little, uh, and I'll then address theories from the trial court below concerning the automobile exception to the warrant requirement and the lack of probable cause for the search, although I'm happy to address issues or questions in any order. As to search incident to arrest, before I discuss any of the law on search incident to arrest, I think it's important to establish the, the basic fact that takes this theory off the table. There was no arrest. The state cannot point to any testimony from the officers at the suppression hearing or at trial that indicates Kyle Little uh, was arrested on the night of the search or that he was ever arrested in connection with the alleged misdemeanor hit and run. Without any further venture into the law, the Court of Appeals opinion on this topic falls apart if we just give words their ordinary meaning. There can be no search incident to an arrest without an arrest. Now to get into the law on searches incident to arrest. The seminal case is in the United States Supreme Court's 2009 decision in um, Arizona versus Gantt. Um, the facts of that case were that Mr. Gantt was arrested for having a suspended license. Uh, he was in cuffs, in, uh, in handcuffs in a police car. The officer then searched his car and found drugs. United States Supreme Court held that this was a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights and the evidence must be suppressed. In the course of that opinion, the court also uh, took the time to address the search incident to arrest and its theories generally and to correct some 
improper expansions of that doctrine that it had seen in the lower courts. The court explained that there are two bases for a search incident to arrest. The primary one, um, which comes from the Schimmel case, is about officer safety, about any area into which a person could reach to retrieve a weapon or destroy a piece of evidence. Um, that clearly has no application here at all. The second dairy basis, though, was, uh, and particularly in cases involving automobiles, uh, that if there has been an arrest, and there's reason to believe there is additional evidence of the crime of arrest inside the car, and the examples given in Gantt dealt with drugs and firearms. Um, and actually in Gantt, specifically said that in many cases, as when a recent occupant is arrested for a traffic violation, there'll be no reasonable basis to believe the vehicle contains relevant evidence. Already at this point, I think the search incident to arrest doctrine is again off the table because the officer's justification here was that there had been a traffic violation, a misdemeanor hit and run, and they were not searching for additional drugs or firearms that were found on anyone, but supposedly were searching for a license to identify this man, uh, Kyle Little, who had uh, fled the scene. Um, did, did he indicate that he was, uh, that he couldn't stay at the scene for a particular reason? Well, the testimony at the suppression hearing was that uh, some of the bystanders said that Kyle, uh, well, they, I don't even know if they said Kyle, but they said the man who was driving left and said he had warrants. That was the information that the police had. There was a man named Kyle, which that was Miss Julius had told them his, his first name. Uh, and then that the witnesses there said, he said he had warrants. They had no further information as to what these warrants were, um, what they were about. The only basis for them was a witness saying, he said he had them before he disappeared. And they had the fact that he ran away. Yes. yes. And you had the very peculiar circumstance that a lady would or a young person would allow someone to drive her parents' car without knowing the identity of the person? Well, two, I guess two points to that. One, um, I don't know that it's peculiar that someone would drive the car, and she did know this person as Kyle. And she testified at trial, explained that she had known him uh, before. Um, she thought she recalled saying his whole name and not just his first name, but she couldn't remember very well if she'd just been in the car accident. Um, so, uh, you know, she didn't say he was a person unknown to her, but she said his name was Kyle. Also, the officers were given the description that he had this facial tattoo, and thus they were actually quickly able to identify him by speaking with the witnesses, and the officers pulled up a photo of this man, and that's how they um, knew his name and testified to it at the suppression hearing. Is it reasonable for law enforcement to attempt to identify an individual who has fled the scene of an accident and claimed that he had warrants outstanding against him? To attempt to identify him, certainly, and that's what Officer Hicks was doing um, at the same time that the search was happening. He was speaking to the bystanders, trying to identify who this was, get a little more information, and, um, uh, you know, investigate the case. Uh, there was the fact that the officers can inquire about his identity does not give them a runaround for the warrant requirement or probable cause to go into Ms. Julius's parents' car, 
open the car, open the containers, and search for things. Um, so the ability to make inquiry or ask someone about their identity, just as an officer could stop someone on the street and ask them about their identity, does not mean uh, that they immediately have the ability to search that person to see if they are carrying some kind of identification uh, without more. Of course, they couldn't ask Kyle anything because he had left. Certainly. So right. isn't your analogy not analogous? Well, it is. Um, in this case, they, they were asking the witnesses who were present for that information. But no, it's, it's not the same as a stop of the person. I mean, what makes it odd talking about this with a search incident to arrest framework is that uh, the person wasn't there uh, to be arrested. Um, and so, you know, for that basis alone, this can't be a search incident to his arrest. It, it, it can't be upheld on that basis. Um, and that was the Court of Appeals primary. But, but just on the question of reasonableness, um, you had, is there any indication that any of the bystanders knew who the individual was? No, I don't believe so. Okay. So you have bystanders, none of whom is familiar with the individual, but who heard him say, I've got warrants, and Correct. therefore he fled into the woods. And you have a passenger in the car who can't identify him either. Right. right? Well, she, yes, she said this was, this was Kyle. I, mean, I don't know whether she was shown a photograph of him. Um, I think she could have identified him. But, but she him, didn't but know his last name. She did not have... The officers said that she did not tell them his last name. Is, she just it, said Kyle. So my question to you is, to what extent do those facts uh, influence, or should they influence our analysis of the reasonableness of the search? Well, I think the answer to that depends on what, what theory we're working well, with. Well, let me, let me put it to you in a, a different way. How else could the officers have reasonably gone about trying to identify the individual? Well, I think could have done it the way they did. I mean, an odd thing about this case is that he was, the, he was not identified through the search. He was identified through the officer doing what he should have done, which is you got an accident. This isn't an investigation of any kind of confidential tip or drugs or anything. This is an accident. Um, and they show up and they're taking care of the person on the side of the road and talking to the bystanders and eventually calling a tow truck to remove the car. It's an um, accident that involved a crime, right? Potentially, yeah. The officer said it potentially involved hit and run because he left, because there was some minor property damage, and that would qualify it for a misdemeanor hit and run. So that's a crime, and that's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed, right? Yes. And, um, I mean, the important point here is probable cause to arrest is not probable cause to search. They may have had probable cause to arrest Kyle if they found him, if they identified him, but that does not give probable cause to search this vehicle without some additional, uh, without something else that the officers can point to a reasonable basis to believe that they are looking for evidence of a crime in the vehicle. Probable cause to arrest would include probable cause to seek to identify the person that needs to be arrested, correct? I'm not sure I mean, in they have, what they, They've got probable cause that the individual has committed a crime. Right. They need to figure out what his identity is so that they then 
and arrest him. Do you, do you disagree with that? Well, if they have probable cause to arrest a person and they arrest him, at that point they may have, um, they may have the ability to search him. Again, the search incident to arrest can come up and at this phase. Um, if he was arrested and taken to the station, there may be some other rules coming into play, but probable cause to arrest someone does not equate to probable cause to search for identification paperwork on its own. Um, the search here um, did not reveal anything in the vehicle to identify the defendant, is that right? Um, it did not reveal, well, we're talking about, I guess, two folks here, right? It didn't identify Kyle Little, the person whose identification they were seeking. Um, also, it didn't, there wasn't anything to identify Ms. Julius in the car either. So following up on the question from Justice Allen, there was a way in which the officers were able to identify the defendant exclusive of the search because there was nothing actually found in the vehicle to show who the defendant was or otherwise who the driver was, is that right? The driver, yes, yes. So there was a way Certainly that was, was an alternative was to the search to yes. be able to identify who was driving and that ultimately took place. And yes, the alternative happened uh, at the same time as the, the search. Does the law contemplate that, in your view, that a search incident to arrest can take place by way of the search happening prior to anybody's arrest? Well, let me, so there are two cases that the Court of Appeals relied on that deal with, the word prior is a little sticky here because um, prior still has to be contemporaneous, has to be reasonably, substantially contemporaneous with the arrest itself, okay? So are there, there are some cases dealing with the search occurring in the course of events prior to the formal arrest, and, and two of those cases from the Court of Appeals are Wooten and Fizovic, and both of them involved cases where there was um, probable cause. Wooten was one where the person was, uh, there was a tip that he was dealing drugs from his parking lot. They went to the parking lot. They found him. The officers conducted the search and arrested him, but didn't formally arrest him until after the search. However, because they had probable cause for the arrest and this fit under that limited search incident to arrest exception, that was fine. Vizovic, similar, that one actually involved an automobile. He was arrested for an open container. The, he was taken out of the car, but it was reasonable for the police to believe there might be another open container right there. Again, that's what that limited exception is about. And those are just the, the circumstances where this, the Court of Appeals has said, yes, it's okay that the search preceded formally placing the person under arrest. And in both of those circumstances, the individual was known at the time that the search took place. Is that right? And was present and was arrested. Is that a feature that is worthy of distinction in terms of looking at those two cases being relevant to the present case? Absolutely, um, absolutely. And I would also point to um, the Court of Appeals 2000 decision in State versus Fisher, which also made clear that the person actually needs to be arrested. I mean, that was a case where the person was still physically present but wasn't actually arrested, and the Court of Appeals um, you know, struck down the search incident arrest because you do need to have the arrest. Here, we, we don't even have the evidence of the arrest happening, and if it happened, it was going to happen at some point in the future. This is not at all like the cases where in this course of events, okay, we, 
we had probable cause and to arrest this person. And we searched him in the moments before we arrested him, um, or we pulled him out of the car and, and performed the search before we made that declaration of arrest. Counsel, can I ask you about the automobile yes. exception? So um, am I right that the, just the general principle of the automobile exception is you, if you've got probable cause, you don't have to go and get the warrant. You can search the vehicle because the vehicle might not be there if you get a warrant come back. Is that? That is the basic proposition that because of the ready mobility of vehicles on the road, that officers will not be required to go back and get a warrant. So if there was probable cause here to arrest the driver, and which would give you probable cause to search the vehicle to figure out who the driver is, if you went back and tried to get a warrant for that purpose, why wouldn't the automobile exception allow you to skip the warrant step and search the vehicle to try to figure out who this person is that committed a crime? Sure, well, um, okay, so there's a couple of, of steps that, that just can't complete there, and one of them is probable cause, that there was not probable cause to search this car. Um, first of all, aside from just this general question of whether, um, well, there's two parts of it. One is, is searching for someone's identification um, evidence of a crime? Is that an element uh, of, of a crime? And it's, it's not. I mean, there's having a license, the, the instance of someone's license is not part of the crime of hit and run. Um, these cases are talking about, uh, you know, evidence where you sustain, the automobile exception comes from prohibition, from the idea that people are driving around with alcohol in the car, with contraband in the car. It doesn't apply to this, and extending it to um, a license would make this incredibly broad exception because identity is always something the state will need to prove at some point in any crime. Um, but I'm just but, thinking, like I'm imagining going to a neutral magistrate right. and saying, um, we know this person, all we know about this person is his name is Kyle. He himself told, uh, announced in the presence of bystanders that he has outstanding warrants and he just uh, crashed his car and ran away committing a crime. We don't know anything more about Kyle. We think there's things in the car because he was driving the car that may tell us that. So can we have a warrant? Well, and this and it thing, seems like you might get a warrant there. Well, this is where we run into the second problem. I think in theory, someone could make an allegation to get a warrant, but we have to look at what the facts and circumstances are in this case and the crime that was at issue. And um, the only testimony in this case was they asked Ms. Julius if he had a license and she didn't know if he had one in the car or not. And their only understanding of his relationship with the car was that he was briefly driving it, that it wasn't his automobile, et cetera. And the officers did not give any testimony to say, you know, I, in my training experience, people who briefly drive cars tend to put their license under the, you know, there, there was nothing. There was no basis given to believe that this license was there. And logically, the testimony gives many reasons to believe it's not there if he's running away to avoid detection and warrants and he's only driven the car briefly. I mean, I guess maybe I'm overthinking this, but, but I'm just thinking, wouldn't there, in, if you imagine that scenario where you're asking for the warrant, there could be other things though. For example, you say, well, we knew he was driving the car. His DNA might be on the steering wheel. Or, you know, we used the driving car and we saw some, there were some bags and things, perhaps one of the bags is his, there's belongings in there that help us identify where does he live? You know, where has he been recently? That sort of thing. And isn't, aren't those, the, and I guess is your argument just that none of that has sort of been laid out in any of the evidence in the record, so you don't, we can't assume that was the Yes, I mean, as to probable cause, I mean, it's not this court's, as the dissent 
at one point, this court's job to supply probable cause. I mean, the starting point for all Fourth Amendment analysis, all right, is you know from Katz versus United States that searches outside the judicial process without prior approval are per se unreasonable, subject only to these special exceptions. The burden is on those seeking the exemptions to, to show the need for it. So the state had the burden of coming forward with support for probable cause and, and, and did not do that. Putting aside whether the license fits into things at all, it, it wasn't done. Well, uh, with the automobile exception in this case, wasn't the vehicle immobilized, partly submerged, and therefore immovable to such an extent that there would have been time to go to a magistrate in any event and get the protection of a warrant for purposes of being able to perhaps potentially search the vehicle if it was deemed to be necessary? Absolutely, Your Honor. Um, the testimony here was, you know, the officers were asked about this topic at the suppression and at trial, um, asking if it was possible for Ms. Julius or anyone else to drive the vehicle away. They said, I don't think so. Uh, they described it as crumpled, partly in the water. Um, Officer Hicks says he wasn't sure if it would have been drivable at all, even if it could have been gotten out of the road. And in fact, the vehicle was removed only when the officers called a tow truck to tow it and take it back to its owner. So counsel, in, in that situation, uh, you have probable cause that a hit and run uh, has taken place and a vehicle that has been impounded. Uh, isn't an inventory search appropriate by law enforcement? The vehicle was not impounded. That oh, sorry, is- Towed away, towed away. But Could have been impounded. Well, the op there, was, there was actually a good bit of discussion of this at the suppression hearing as to in what cases it would have been inventoried and impounded. And it seems that it was pretty clear that this wasn't part of how these officers would have dealt with this case given the crash and the ownership of the vehicle. But that, that would not be unreasonable, would it? Would not be unreasonable. To, to do a, an inventory search of a vehicle that is uh, immovable, um, evidence of a crime, of hit and run, for which there's probable cause. Well, I think it would be unreasonable because the, uh, the vehicle is not, um, not itself necessarily evidence of, of the crime. I don't know what evidence of the crime of hit and run would be in the vehicle. I mean, the officers didn't even take pictures of the vehicle. It doesn't seem to have been part of uh, this investigation. But um, the discussion of impound was only if they had found drugs and knew that this car was owned by the person who had the drugs, then there would have been an inventory and impound. Or if there had been no driver at all, they would have taken the car but would not necessarily have inventoried it. So I don't think either of those things would have, have happened in just a normal accident investigation. Um, and the trial court, um, you know, this doesn't really show up in the trial court's order, but if you look at the oral back and forth I think on pages 34, 35 in the motion to suppress hearing, trial court rejected the impound inventory theory, citing the officer's testimony and just asked the state to sort of move on to their next argument. Um, Does impoundment surrender to the desire to search pursuant to impoundment? You know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not prepared to say too much about the law regarding when a vehicle is impounded because it simply didn't happen in this case. Um, you know, it seems that the, what, from based on the officer's testimony, in a counterfactual world in which um, maybe they were 
coming specifically to investigate drugs, and they knew that the driver of the car, Kyle, was still there. He was the only person there, was arrested on the scene for the drugs he had in the car, and they took his car away, well, then they would impound and inventory it. I think that would be a permissible search. But that's a, you know, that is a different set of facts from what happened in this case. So between Chief Justice Newby's and Justice Berger's concern about probable cause here and Justice Berger's concern, I'm sorry, Justice Deese's concern about the automobile exception, would it have been preferred as the case law has presented in the past for the officers here if they wanted to search the vehicle that was immobilized and was not able to be moved because it was submerged as well, at least partially, to go to a magistrate, let the magistrate pass on whether or not there was probable cause and then see if a search warrant would have been available at that time pursuant to which the search could have occurred? I would say yes, and I would go one step further. It's not just preferred, but required. Um, required by the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you know, I so I, I'm, a, I'm at the risk of injecting another theory, theory here in addition to all the others we've heard about, but is there, um, you know, there's this sort of murky public safety, community policing mm -hmm. concept that allows you, you know, it's another exception to the warrant requirement. You've got this situation where uh, very odd behavior from someone to say, I have a bunch of warrants, I need to leave. Then you add on to that, this person just committed a crime, is on the run somewhere. An officer is just saying, we need to find out who this person is um, as soon as possible has abandoned this car here. We know there's the automobile exception, you know, and so maybe the car's immobile, but we, uh, we need to look through this, see if we've got anything about who this person is so we can try to find them. Um, is, is there something there in following that I, I don't public see safety? Anything, anything in, from community care in this case. I mean, I suppose you could imagine in a case where they had more information about, you know, he had warrants from, you know, just committed a bank robbery and he's on the run. And, but there's, there's nothing. We don't know, and we still don't know what these these warrants were. I mean, this it never came into this case what what or if he was telling the truth about having warrants and why he wanted to uh, why he wanted to leave. Well, I believe actually one of the officers said they confirmed the existence of, of warrants but never testified to what they were. Let me correct that. I think I think he did have some kind of warrants. Um, but again, that that was never put into evidence and the officers never even confirmed it until after this search and after he'd been identified in other ways. So there's not really a basis for community caretaking. I mean, the caretaking here would have been taking care of the car accident victim who's on the side of the road and, and, and the bystanders in the property. Um, I see that I'm getting close to my time, so I'd like to, unless there's another question, I'd like to reserve. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. May it please the court. I'm William Walton from the North Carolina Department of Justice and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to talk to you about a, a couple things relevant to this case. Um, first, I'd kind of like to start with the um, automobile exception analysis. Um, be, being that the car was found in a public area and the mobile natures of car cars and being that officers and superior court judges need to have a bright line test for understanding when the automobile exception occurs that I would say that in this case the automobile exception applied to the facts here though that there's there's been you know 
arguments about the immobility of the car, the fact that it was not drivable is an assumption made by the officers at the scene. We don't know whether if it was pulled from the ditch, if it would have been able to drive off the scene or not. Um, Deputy or Trooper Sanders stated that the reason he went through the passenger side was because he didn't want to get his boots dirty, not that the, you know, the car or important components of it were in fact submerged in, in the water. Um, I, there are numerous um, factors that could cause a car to be immobile and to... And isn't part of it too that it's not just the fact that the car, whether the car is operable and can be driven, it's that the idea that if you go to get the warrant and you're searching someone's home, when you come back, their home is definitely going to be there. Um, but uh, so here, for example, the defendant could have called a tow truck and said, get my car out of here. And they come back with a warrant and the car is gone. Precisely. The inherent mobility of vehicles cre creates the exigency. I mean, a car could run out of gas. The battery could come out. There could be any number of things that cause a car to be momentarily inoperable. And there's no telling what time factor it would take to get that car back to op operational and to you know have officers at the scene making that calculus or superior court judges then making that calculus makes it a a harder a harder job to do when when it could just be if it's in an, a public area and it's a car then you know the, the automobile exception may 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 very well apply to the facts of that case moving to um, probable cause here what the officers knew at the time was that they had a um, purported driver, Kyle, whose, whose name is, was in fact William Kyle Little, so they didn't actually in fact identify him for you know, purposes of running a search, even with Kyle, um, that he had fled, he had told the people on the scene that he had warrants. Um, the, and the officer at the scene, Trooper Sanders, had, had no reason to believe that a that a search would be fruitless with his you know possible experience and uh, knowledge that what a person may do on fleeing from a scene of a crime i believe that there was probable cause to search the vehicle to subject that they did not need to wait for a warrant to occur uh, can i just make sure we're clear on the facts you you agree that um they by using the physical description that the bystanders gave um, of William Kai, Kyle Little, um, that, that ultimately, as they were searching, they actually did identify him. Yes, they did identify him. And, and so if they had just held off on the search and had you know, used the picture on the cell phone to identify who he was, would the state say that under the automobile exception, there was still probable cause to search the interior of the car? I think so because it's what the officer knew at the time he initiated the search. They aren't, the officers, you know, really following best practices were interviewing different witnesses at the time. What Trooper Sanders understood when he entered the time of the car is, is, what, is what matters and whether there's justification for him to enter the car. The fact that uh, Deputy Hicks discovered Kyle's true identity when Trooper Sanders was, was you know, finishing up with his search does not deprive Trooper Sanders of the authority to search when he began his search. Would it have been a best practice to, for those officers to have done that beforehand? Possibly, but was it a requirement? Well, I think my question is a little different. Oh. I, I'm asking, I'm, I'm somewhat of a hypothetical, to say what if they had not searched right away? And so they have already his name 
um, from the picture and the people bystanders saying, yep, that's the guy who ran away. Is it your position that still under the automobile exception that there would be um, ability to search the interior of the car at that well, point? I don't believe under those facts that the search of the car would have been necessary because the entire purpose of searching the car was to find the, identi the identity of him. The person who, the purported driver, that was the issue in, 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 in the impetus in searching the car. So the fact that if they would have been some set of other set of facts been able to find that information beforehand, then they wouldn't have had the reason to go into the car or, or at least that reason to go into the car. I also wanted to differentiate this case from State v. Green and State v. Rogers, cases that were cited by the defendant for reasons that Officer or Trooper Sanders lacked probable cause for the search. In both of those cases, the officers were informed at the scene by those potential subjects that they didn't have identification on them. And in both instances, they provided the officer with the information request. They stated to the officer, this is, this is my name. I don't have information on me. And the officer searched anyway. That is distinguishable here because as Mr. Little was not at the scene, they didn't have they didn't have his name and they didn't have evidence that would that a reasonable prudent person would find that there wouldn't be identification in the car if someone is directly telling you that their identification is not on them that subverts your argument to go search for that particular item Now, if there are no further questions on, on that aspect, I'll, I'll move to the search incident in, to arrest. In the case here, ultimately, when the, the courts allowed for there to be a search incident to arrest prior to an arrest occurring, I believe that that framework applies in and of itself when someone has probable cause to arrest. If you have probable cause to arrest, and perform a search and the defendant then flees or so avoids arrest, he should not benefit by his flee to invalidate an otherwise reasonable search. And the, the analysis here turns on whether it was, you know, if he had probable cause to search and he had, in fact, did have probable cause for a to arrest Mr. Mr. Little um, on both the possible of a hit and run. And then also he didn't know the da necessary dangerousness of this person. He also could be investigating what those active warrants are to, if there is in fact some danger to the community. All that they knew was that this person at the scene fled and his basis for fleeing that he intimated to the to the witnesses at the scene was that was that he had warrants. That was the in entirety of the information that they had and that the the search was thereby, they thereby had the authority to search because you are allowed to search prior to arrest, then they have the authority to go ahead and do that. And then the, the contents and subjects of that search were reasonable. So in North Carolina, uh, 1992, we adopted what's called the inevitable discovery doctrine. Um, is that comparable to uh, search prior to the actual arrest? It, 
it would depend on the, the I think overall the answer is yes, but the, the, the pertinent facts may play a role in that as well. With a, you well, know, with if a- the person were gonna be arrested, the car was not his, the bag was identified as his, if he is arrested and can search, the bag can be searched at the time of his arrest, then that seems like it's inevitable discovery. Yes, I agree with that. If there are, if there are no further questions, I'll cede the rest of my time. Um, I'd like to share something from the transcripts from the state's closing argument um, at trial. Uh, so when the state uh, took Ms. Julius to trial following the evidence that was found in the search, the state uh, you know, sought a trafficking conviction which it obtained based on that black bag that was in the car. Here was the prosecutor's argument about the bag uh, and about Mr. Little. Uh, she wants you to believe that Kyle Little, she now says, is the person who that belongs to. She wants to say that when he wrecked, he jumped up and ran away, but we know there was only one person, one person found there by the officer. We know that someone named Kyle was not there. We don't know that Kyle was there, but she says he was. She says he ran away. Why didn't he just grab that thing and run with it? He got, he had a chance, if there is such a Kyle. This is volume two, page 229 of the transcripts. At the suppression hearing and on appeal, the state has argued the Fourth Amendment didn't protect Joanna Julius because of the state's need to identify Kyle, the exigency to find evidence related to him, the probable cause to find his license. Then at trial, when it was convenient to help convict her for trafficking, Kyle doesn't exist. This is the kind of injustice that results when what should be a narrow exception to a core constitutional protection becomes so broad that courts will accept the thinnest justification. The state used Kyle to avoid obtaining a warrant or having probable cause to search the car, and then the state turned around and argued he didn't exist to convince a jury to convict her of trafficking. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, you said the, the state used Kyle to avoid uh, obtaining a warrant. You're not suggesting that the officers here uh, in any way intentionally violated uh, the defendant's rights or in, in their attempt to uh, locate Kyle or that they otherwise acted in some sort of bad faith, are you? No, I'm not suggesting that the officers acted in bad faith. Um, I'm not suggesting that this was a, um, no. Uh, the officers, I think, testified to what they saw and did at the scene. Um, but the state turned around and then argued that the same person didn't exist after having legally use this at the motion to suppress hearing in order to get the evidence in. Then of course, um, you know, this is what allowed the state to obtain the trafficking conviction and the volume of drugs necessary for trafficking, which led to my client who had no criminal record being s separated from her children and sent to prison for a minimum of six years. The search was unconstitutional and this conviction shouldn't stand. Ms. Julius respectfully asked this court to protect the rights of all North Carolina citizens to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and to reverse the Court of Appeals. If there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel.